The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the U.S. and around the world. In fact, our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. Uh, on today's show, which is being brought to you in part by Azi and Morphotech, we'll be talking about medical and scientific innovations in cancer treatment. Uh, if you listen to our show regularly, you've heard us talk about a variety of treatment options for people facing cancer. We've talked about surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, uh, new targeted therapies, and uh, in fact, in recent years, scientific discoveries have made it possible to develop and test new methods of cancer treatment, some of which appear to be uh, less toxic, less invasive. Um, and this could mean the treatment options available in the near future won't have such uh, harsh side effects or, or require such long uh, recovery periods, um, you know, some, sometimes with things like surgery. Uh, and, you know, at the Cancer Support Community, a key part of our mission is to empower people with knowledge. This means bringing our audience's information about the most cutting-edge treatment options available. And, and while some of the therapies we'll talk about today certainly are still being tested, uh, we do have faith that the, these developments have the potential to make a huge impact in the way the cancer is treated in the next few years and uh, will be available for use hopefully as standard treatment options once they're determined uh, safe for use. We do have on the show today two experts uh, at the top of their fields in scientific and medical research and development. They will be talking to us about how it is possible to use some existing technologies in innovative ways to take a new approach to treatment for cancer and, and even other other health issues. In, in talking about some of the treatments being developed currently, we'll also examine how these potential therapies are being tested, first in animals, then in humans, and why it's important to follow a specific process, a specific protocol when, when testing new treatments. Um, there has been innovation and progress in the way treatment options are tested in recent years, and, you know, we'll learn about some of these new protocols and about how the way that therapies are tested could potentially uh, shorten the timeline between when a discovery is made and when it's available to the public, and ultimately we certainly hope to leave our audience with an understanding of where we are in the development of some of these new treatments for cancer and what the future of cancer treatment holds. Um, I'm pleased to welcome our two expert guests to the show. First, we have Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein, Associate Director for Technology and Innovation at the Food and Drug Administration Center for Devices and Radiological Health. Um, in short, Dr. Sackner-Bernstein's work focuses on the scientific 
innovative and public health components of the FDA's priorities. He's really just the right person to speak to us about innovation in cancer treatment, where we are currently and where two new technologies will take us. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Dr. Bernstein. Uh, we're also here with Dr. Stephen Curley, Professor of Surgical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and a Professor in Mechanical Engineering and Material, uh, Material Science at Rice University. Dr. Curley is a practicing oncologist and clinical researcher whose work involves the development and testing of cutting-edge therapies which, once approved, could revolutionize the way cancer is treated. Honored to have you here with us, Dr. Curley. My pleasure. So with that, I want to jump right in. Dr. Curley, I do want to start with you. Um, 60 Minutes reported that uh, you have been working develop a, to develop a treatment for cancer that has virtually uh, no side effects. Can you talk to, to us about this? Is this too good to be true? Uh, well, the answer is I'm always a little bit hesitant to, to say something quite that bold. The uh, gentleman who invented this idea, John Kansas, uh, certainly that was his hope. He was himself a, a cancer patient suffering from leukemia and knew all too well the side effects of chemotherapy and the, the way it made him feel, which he didn't like. He also saw other cancer patients suffering with side effects, so he was profoundly affected by that. Uh, so his hope was to develop a treatment, which we have continued to investigate, where we know in theory, based on John's idea and on the experiments we've performed, if we can get certain types of what we call nanoparticles, which as you know are very, very tiny particles, into cancer cells and then treat them with the radio frequency device that John invented, uh, we are able to heat those cells and kill the cells by heating them. So if we are successful in delivering the nanoparticles only to cancer cells, mm-hmm. we should, in theory, be able to damage the cancer cells without damaging or harming normal cells. Uh, I say should because not all cancers have abnormal molecules or proteins or things that we can you know, target the nanoparticles right. to on the surface. We have been able to show in the lab some success in animals, but it's still in the early testing phase. So, so just explain to our listeners today, so with a traditional chemotherapy, for example, we know that people can get very sick, can get some very severe side effects. Why is that compared to the new treatment that you're talking about? Well, chemotherapy drugs uh, are delivered to the entire body, uh, so that means they circulate to not only cancer cells, but they go to also normal cells. Most chemotherapy drugs work by damaging cells uh, or killing cells that are growing rapidly. Obviously, that's what cancer is. It's cells that are growing out of control. They're growing too rapidly. They're dividing. They're spreading. The problem is there are lots of normal cells in the human body that also are dividing rapidly. That's why cancer patients on chemotherapy may develop anemia. You know, their, their blood count drops. Their white blood cells go down. Their platelets go down uh, because cells in the bone marrow are being replenished at a rapid rate. Uh, nausea, diarrhea, things like that because the cells that line your gut are also undergoing regeneration at a rapid rate. So the side effects occur from the fact that there is no specificity to the chemotherapy drugs, meaning it can affect any cells in the body that are rapidly dividing. So, Dr. Sackner-Bernstein from the Food and Drug Administration, so let's break this down a little bit in, in, in simplest terms. Explain to us 
how this nanotechnology, it sounds like Star Trek a little bit, how does this nanotechnology work to, to kill cancer cells? Well, it's, it's actually a very interesting question because what you run into when you start talking about this is the, is the realization that nanotechnology is an incredibly broad scientific discipline. It's, it's um, often not appreciated that it's as if people would say, well, what is the biologic cause of cancer? And mm. there is not one biologic cause of cancer. There are thousands and thousands. Uh, to give you an idea, if you go back 100 years ago, there were two types of cancer, lymphoma and leukemia. By the time I was in medical school, there probably were about 10 or 15 with different mm -hmm. types, acute and, and chronic and different types of subsets that we were learning how to differentiate and how to see the, the different components, not that there were all these new cancers developing that never did. And by now, um, uh, Dr. Curley and some of his colleagues would probably be able to give you a closer estimate, but there are probably 90 or 100 different kinds of blood cancers. Again, it's because we understand it more. So when we talk about nanotechnology, it's really so broad. The, the way I've discussed it with, with some of my uh, colleagues and with students when I was in a teaching program is that if you're imagining yourself on the top of a four- or five-story building and you see a target down below and you drop a handful of rocks, well, you might hit the target, but if the target has a lot of components, you're going to do a lot of damage. You can imagine where if you took a handful of sand, so again, smaller particles than rocks, which is mm -hmm. what nanotechnology really is talking about, making stuff, chemicals, materials, and small particles, mm -hmm. it's going to hit a very, very small spot on that target. Now, the, the challenge that people like, like Steve are, are addressing is how do you take those little pieces of sand that could theoretically fit into a, you know, the equivalent of a cell. Now, a piece of sand can't, but in the equivalent terms, fit into the cancer itself and attach it to some sort of other thing, a, an antibody, a protein, some sort of chemical that's smart enough to attach only to the cancer cells. And that's how you could theoretically imagine the idea of nanotechnology killing a cancer cell because it can be delivered and then has some special properties um, with a minimal amount of effect on normal cells. So how, so how did we... How did we learn about it? How was it discovered? How did it, we start to sort of apply it to uh, to cancer? Well, Steve well, actually has a has a, a background with at least one of the people who are right at the cutting edge of understanding mm -hmm. some of the seminal uh, reasons why nanotechnology could be so useful. So, Steve, maybe you want to talk about that a bit. Yeah, one of the uh, people I collaborated on uh, when I first started some of these projects was Professor Richard Smalley from Rice University, mm -hmm. who uh, won the Nobel Prize for finding uh, carbon nanoparticles. Uh, and ironically enough, he himself was a uh, leukemia patient at MD Anderson when I first met him. And we had some fascinating discussions about both cancer treatment and use of nanoparticles and nanotechnology. Uh, Rick was a very visionary uh, individual, and he recognized that because of the very small size of these particles, they may be useful in treating cancer themselves or improving the diagnosis of cancer, mm -hmm. uh, trying to find cancer at an earlier stage. Uh, also trying to use it to deliver things like chemotherapy drugs and reduce the side effects. 
so it was really through some conversations with him and the fact that he recognized that these very tiny particles, which were really initially made as just sort of interesting chemical and engineering things, they thought, oh, look at this neat thing that I made. Well, he said, that's not enough for me. I need to know that this actually is going to be useful to mankind, that this is actually going to help cancer patients or, again, nanotechnology, uh, as Jonathan mentioned, is a very broad field. It's used in electronics. It's used in computers. It's used in energy. We are interested in its use in improving medical care, particularly, you know, as I said, in diagnosing and treating cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dr. Curley, we've just got a, a, a minute before the break here, but, but you and Dr. Sackner-Bernstein are doing some work together in this area. What's the, the correlation between your work? Well, actually, that, that was a great pleasure. Um, when I started publishing and talking about some of this work with nanoparticles, uh, uh, Jonathan was kind enough to contact me and said, you know, here at the FDA, we're hearing more and more about this nanotechnology and its application in medicine and treating different types of patients. Uh, and he uh, invited me to come up and meet with some of the chemists and meet with some of the investigators there at the FDA, which was a great trip for me. And that has subsequently led to uh, a number of projects that we've collaborated on and continue to talk about and work on. Uh, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about innovations in cancer treatment. Uh, we're talking about where we are today, uh, where we're going in the future, and, and uh, we're, we're looking at some fascinating technologies and some innovative ways and, and uh, ways to take a new approach uh, to the treatment of cancer. We've got two amazing guests with us today, Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein, Associate Director for Technology and Innovation at the Food and Drug Administration at their Center for Devices in Radiological Health. And we have Dr. Stephen Curley, Professor of Surgical Oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center and also a professor in Mechanical Engineering and Material Science uh, at Rice University. We've got a lot, uh, a, lot a lot that we're going to cover on the show today. I know we're taking uh, some fairly complex topics and we are going to break those down. Um, we're really going to get to the heart of, of some of the research uh, that's happening uh, in these technologies in some innovative ways uh, to approach cancer. We've talked on the show before about new focus therapies, targeted therapies, how do we uh, create better outcomes for patients, how do we create a better kind of side effect profile, better quality of life uh, for patients. We're going to drill down on some of those innovations today. We're going to take a quick break right now, but we'll be right back. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. 
For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Tibaldo. Today we're talking to Dr. Stephen Curley and Dr. Jonathan Stackner-Bernstein, experts in the field of research and development for new treatment options in cancer. Uh, we've just introduced the idea of uh, radiofrequency, nanoparticle therapy, uh, treatments for cancer. And again, I know these are some complex topics. We're going to continue to break these down, talk about them in, in, uh, in simple terms, but uh, really important for us to understand the development of these new uh, treatments for cancer, new approaches uh, to cancer using some of these fascinating uh, technologies. We're going to dig a little bit deeper to find out um, who these novel therapies may benefit and when these, uh, when these things might be available for, uh, for, for patient use. Um, Dr. Curley, we're constantly hearing about new, new promising treatments in the news, uh, uh, in the paper, on the Internet. Um, but, but with regard to your work in radiofrequency and nanoparticle uh, therapy, are we, are we talking about a, a, a better treatment for cancer? Are we talking about a cure for cancer? You know, what kind of timeline are we on? Can you elaborate on that for us a little bit? Uh, I can, and uh, I'm always hesitant to throw the word cure out. Um, yeah. Because, uh, you know, it, it, everybody listening in knows just how uh, difficult disease this is to treat. And yeah. uh, we all know stories of patients who have been many years out and then had the cancer come back. And that's frustrating to everybody. Um, I do think that we have the potential to come up with much more effective and less toxic treatments for cancer so that we can turn it into more of a chronic disease. There are already multiple examples of cancers where, you know, previously we had almost nothing we could do for them. And now we have patients who are living with their cancer, you know, five, eight, even 10 years later. Um, the, the analogy I always use is, you know, there's lots of people who have high blood pressure or who have diabetes. And once you have those things, well, you're always going to have high blood pressure or diabetes. And what you have to do is learn to live with it. You learn to control the diabetes or you learn to control the hypertension. And perhaps that means taking medicine, changing your diet. The same is true with cancer. And that's a direction that many of us in cancer research are going, is trying to come up with ways to knock the cancer down, hold it at bay, keep it from growing again, and doing that in a way that people can live a normal lifestyle. So a bit of a wordy answer to your question. Again, I'm just, I always hesitate to use the word cure because right. cancer is cancer and it has a nasty habit of re- rearing its evil head. And, you know, I, I believe in knocking that head off every time it rears it, and that's what we're looking at doing. Uh, so, so Dr. Curley, not to get too not to get too controversial on the uh, on the topic or too political, but um, do you think that 
in some ways we as a, as a, as a nation have, uh, have kind of, you know, backed off of this idea of trying to, trying to cure cancer. I mean, you think about sort of big ideas in our, in our country, you know, sending a man to the moon in 1971, Nixon declared a war on cancer in this country. Here we are still, you know, still fighting this war, even, uh, you know, even in some ways sort of the mission of the FDA has changed a bit to move away from that cure idea and again towards decreasing mortality, improving, improving, uh, quality of life in your years in the field i just love, just love to get your observations about where you think we are as a nation on this and 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 are we you know are we copping out are we backing away from this idea of a cure uh absolutely not i mean that is every patient i see that is my goal uh, but I'm also a realist, and yeah. I tell them that uh, you're stuck with me, meaning I'll be with <laughs> you, uh, good or bad. Uh, I hope that every time I see you, it's a good conversation to tell you that uh, there's no evidence of cancer, but there are times when I have to have that tough conversation with a patient and their family and say, look, the cancer is back, and here's where it is, and this is what we can do about it. These are our options. Um, and so I think that you know the cancer research community is very keyed in to doing everything possible to control the disease. So control, the ultimate control is cure, but even in those patients who we feel we can't cure, if we can stop it, if we can slow it down and do it in a fashion that people can continue to lead you know, healthy, productive lives, meaning that they don't have such bad side effects from the treatment itself that it's made life difficult. That Those are very lofty goals and, and those to which we aspire. Um, I, I can tell you that... Uh, those of us who kind of play on both sides of the street, meaning that we do cancer research and we treat patients, yeah. all believe that with each patient we're going to hit a home run. You know, we're going to try and yeah. hit it out of the park and say, okay, we're going to try and cure your cancer. But we all know, using the baseball analogy, that even the greatest hitters only get on, you know, maybe three out of every ten times they come to bat. And so we want to increase that average. We we want to get that average where it's five, six, seven, eight. Again, hopefully where it's 10 out of 10, we can effectively treat a patient even if we don't cure them. Yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Sackner-Bernstein, you're, you know, obviously with the Food and Drug Administration, you're working at the federal level. You talked about, uh, you know, inviting Dr. Curley up to, to share some of this work and some of the advances using in nanotechnology. How's this news uh, of this technology being received by the, the medical and scientific uh, communities? What's the, you know, what's the reaction? What's the dialogue on this right now? I think if you were to look at the at the medical literature and and those of you listening who have the ability to decipher it I think would would see that this is the case that the the scientists the docs who are really digging in um thoughtfully into this arena are incredibly excited this is unbelievable kind of technology that can just do truly amazing things um there are those who will read the headlines or maybe just read the article summaries who may feel a little bit more frustrated because they're thinking that they're reacting to it as though they've been expecting the breakthrough that would cure cancer for the last decade that could be associated with nanotechnology. Nanotechnology is not something that has only come on the forefront a year or two ago, but the amount of scientific advances is, is, is truly fantastic. And I think that one of the things that's also worth pointing out is it's not as though the FDA is thinking about the goal being limited to reducing the rate of mortality or prolonging life a little bit. Of, of course, we want the home run, too. Yeah. But I think yeah. if you look back at the history of, of technology advancements, whether you're looking at medicine, healthcare, or any other field, 
it, it's it's almost impossible for even someone like Dr. Curley or any of us at the FDA to to know that we have the breakthrough. I lo- I love to tell the story to people of my favorite medical device, the medical device that people don't even think of as a medical device, that's probably saved more lives than any other medical device over the last century, and that's the electric light bulb. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go back to 1900, uh, the, a classic case being when President McKinley was shot, the surgeon was looking around in his abdomen for bullets and had to give up before he could find a second bullet because there were no electric lights being used. Now, interestingly, an electric light was actually brought into the operating room towards the end of the procedure, but it wasn't used because the people there didn't even realize the power of a surgeon being able to see clearly into the operative field. And in some ways, with nanotechnology, we're still trying to figure out the light bulb that allows us to see the path to get these particles into the right cells in a way that targets them, and that also is is safe enough so it's the right choice to make. But we're all focusing uh, very closely on the cure, the management, really trying to make sure we're we're both paying attention deeply as well as being open-minded to some of those innovations that are hard to see coming. So, so Dr. Crowley, let's, you know, for our listeners, let's talk about where we are in the development of this nanotechnology in terms of, a, you know, a, a, a timeline. Is it, are we, are we in research? Are we in, in, in animal testing? What, you know, what's the, what's the timeline on when this might be available as a mainstream treatment for the public? Well, there are some uh, nanoparticles or elements of nanotechnology that are already in uh, human clinical trials. So the answer is uh, we're past animal testing with some types. There are some types of gold nanoparticles that are being used to treat patients who have cancer of the mouth or throat. Uh, you actually uh, use a laser placed into the patient's mouth or throat, and the tumor cells that have those nanoparticles, uh, again, that laser causes the nanoparticles to heat, uh, killing the cancer. There are some other nanoparticles that are being studied to actually, again, deliver a standard type of chemotherapy drug or a biologic drug and try to, again, improve the direct or, as you used the term before, targeted delivery to the cancer cell so that you can increase the amount of the drug into the cancer cell to try and kill it while reducing the damage to normal cells, reducing the side effects. So there are already a number of examples of um, things in the pipeline to make uh, diagnostic tests better. That includes laboratory tests. Uh, every cancer patient goes through the drill of multiple types of x-ray studies, MRI scans, CT scans. We're looking at nanoparticles to improve the accuracy of those. And again, there's a number of different types of nanoparticles that are currently in what we call preclinical testing, meaning in cells or in animals that will be coming into human trials testing over the next several years. So, uh, Dr. Curley, we've got uh, a couple minutes till our, our break uh, coming up here, but um, in terms of where we are with the research, so once, uh, once approved, who will benefit uh, from the treatment? Are we seeing in the, in the clinical studies and in the research, are we seeing particular response rates in certain types of cancers? Are we seeing, you know, more response in solid tumors versus blood cancers? Are, you know, what's the early research showing us in terms of, of who will benefit from this? Well, the, the, 
most of the nanotechnology that's currently in clinical trials or nearing it is being applied to solid tumors, so things like head and neck cancer, uh, liver cancer, pancreas cancer, that type of thing. Uh, we are actually in my lab also studying it in leukemia, although that's that's sort of an aside, and that's because of my association with John Kansas. I'm also interested, again, in lung cancer, liver cancer, breast cancer, pancreas cancer, colon cancer. So there's a broad array of types of cancers that we hope to treat with this. Again, I'm going to go back to a point you made earlier, which is the so what question in this is, can we target these nanoparticles to the cancer cells? And that is the biggest area of push right now. And that's true of people not only doing research specifically in nanotechnology, but our many colleagues who are looking for substances either on the surface or within cancer cells that is abnormal that we can then target with a nanoparticle to produce the effect we want. Tim, what what some people don't realize about cancer cells is that the very basis that allows them to grow and Mm -hmm. put us at risk is that they are almost can be thought of as really smart. And what they do is they they don't show their cards. So the surface Mm -hmm. of the cell um, isn't something that can be recognized by the body in those settings as being abnormal. And therefore, the cell can continue to grow, divide, Mm -hmm. uh, and cause its problems. So it, it gets to the point where it gets, where it's causing the risk to us, because it's smart at hiding itself, and that makes it hard to target it. Hard to find it, hard to target it. Okay. Well, that's, 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 I think that's a great analogy, and I've heard other folks say that. You know, it's a very smart, very sneaky disease, and just when we come in with one uh, with one new treatment, it, it finds another way to grow uh, and develop. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking to you about the innovations in cancer treatment, new technologies being applied to cancer care. We're going to take a very quick break here, and we will be right back. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaides, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, brought to you in part today by Morphotech 
Amgen and Millennium. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo, and uh, I'm talking today to Dr. Stephen Curley and Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein. They are experts in the field of research and the development of new treatment options uh, in cancer. We've been talking about advances and innovations in the development of of new treatment and new technology. Uh, I I would like to talk to our two experts today a little bit more um, about what the testing process uh, looks like from the discovery of a new treatment option to really widespread uh, availability to the public as a, as a you know validated and safe uh, safe therapy. I think this is something that uh, a lot of folks don't really understand or sometimes are surprised to learn about the process. Uh, of development of new therapies and, and um, the, sometimes the length of time that it takes to, to bring new therapies to market and, and, and really how few early discoveries actually make it uh, to market as a, as a cancer treatment. So, so, Dr. Curley, can you talk to us about kind of treatment testing, about the, uh, the, the process of that testing in animals and the limitations to that and, and uh, you know, wh- why sometimes we see early results in animals and then not uh, in human testing. Can you just educate our listeners a little bit about that important process? Uh, absolutely. Um, and the reason that we do animal testing is uh, two reasons. One, you know, since we're talking about anti-cancer treatments, you want to prove that it is effective, meaning that you can kill or control the cancer. And two, you want to know what, if any, side effects are associated with the treatment because that's very common with chemotherapy drugs. It causes some kind of side effect. So we need to know if those side effects are more severe than the treatment of the disease you're trying to kill. Um, the biggest problem and the reason, you know, I always cringe when I hear of a new test that looks very promising done in, in lab animals is that lab animals are genetically very similar. They're mm-hmm. all very much the same. So it, certain types of mice or certain types of rabbits, whatever. You know, that's not the real world. Animals out in the real world are like humans. You know, we are not very similar. We're very diverse genetically. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's not uncommon to see a great result in some study done in lab animals. And then you take it to a human population who are genetically very different, one patient to the next, and you can see a very wide range of responses. And sometimes to our great frustration, not the kind of response we wanted. So, Dr. Curley, so what you're, so, so what we're, one of the things that we're seeing in advances in cancer care and cancer treatment is the ability, uh, to test certain patients for certain genetic mutations or genetic predispositions and that we're able to target some therapies to patients based on a genetic predisposition. Is that sort of one of the differences that you're talking about from, from, from person to person? Uh, yes, it, that's one. But the other is the ones that there's most cancer is not necessarily related to a specific genetic uh, predisposition. We are certainly recognizing more and more cancers from families that do have a specific disorder or set of gene disorders that causes them to be more uh, prone to develop a certain type of cancer. But we realize that the majority of patients who get cancer, it's as far as we know, it's just a random event. It may be related to things in the environment, things uh, that we can't even measure or know about. And so that's what I mean. You know, we're a very diverse population, and uh, you know, people have uh, all other sorts of problems and, and health issues that go along with it. And sometimes we have to treat those in addition to the cancer, which can also increase the complexity. 
So this is what I mean, you know, a, a, a series of animals that you use for experiments in the lab look the same, act the same, and genetically have very few differences. That's not true of human populations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Sackner-Bernstein, you've, you've, you've talked about a, a program that would use man-made human organs for drug development. Can you talk about that program and, and, and how it would, would work if it received funding? Is that a federal program? Well, the, the idea of, of testing uh, in ways that doesn't involve animals is a topic that's been part of discussion for years. Mm. And the problem has been that the, the alternative path has not been evident. So uh, one would look at, at animal testing and realize that the, the toxicities in animals, and I'm not speaking just about cancer therapies, I'm talking across the board, uh, only correlate with what's seen in human in, in, at a, as low as 30% of the time to as much as 70% of the time. So what that means is not only do the animal tests not predict all that well what's going to happen in people, but there's such a huge range of, of, of how predictive they are that it makes it really difficult to select the right drug. So one postulate is that the reason we don't have more therapies hitting the market is that our system doesn't help the companies, the, the, the discoverers, determine as well as it could the the what the optimal selection is, which drug should be tested, which protein should be tested. Um, so to get around that, one of the government agencies called DARPA, it's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and it's if, if you Google it, what you'll see is that it's a it's an organization that really lives on the leading edge. Some would say beyond the leading edge of science and technology, really taking on very very bold um, activities. They're typically focused on military needs. So one might ask, why would a military agency focus on how we select drugs? Well, think about the, the national security importance of a major uh, outbreak. Uh, people, I'm sure, will be talking about that more with the release of Contagion, the movie. But uh, well before that movie came along, DARPA realized that there'd be a big problem if there were a major outbreak of an illness think back to the 1918 influenza outbreak, which killed tens of millions of people globally. And then we had to wait years from the time a a treatment was identified until human trials could even start. So they launched a project there that I like to think of as a test. I don't know if they would label it the same way, which was to figure out how to take cells from people. So uh, imagine going in to the facility where you donate blood. But instead of donating blood, they're also selecting out some of the cells that are that are the, the early cells, the immature cells. And they take those cells out and put them through a process where they then can literally grow my immune system on a piece of plastic. Mm. And by doing that, they can then expose my immune system and maybe another hundred other people's immune systems to um, uh, to a vaccine that they think might be good and look at what my immune system would do. Would it produce antibodies? Mm-hmm. Would it overproduce antibodies? Would it cause a, an adverse reaction to my immune system? Mm-hmm. And some of the early results with that platform are very promising, and I expect that we'll see more and more of that published in the literature. Fantastic. So the, with that, really, I mean, it's beyond science fiction. 
I mean, you hear yeah. about the idea that people yeah. need organs for transplant, and, and certainly there are millions of dollars being invested to, in companies trying to grow organs, but here's an example where a company was able to do that with the immune system, an unbelievably complicated part of the human body. Mm. And so DARPA has considered, based on that success, whether they would want to expand the program. And uh, we held a workshop that was jointly uh, hosted by the FDA and DARPA, back in June, to understand the landscape a little bit better as they start to figure out what they would be able to accomplish by funding development, how it could help from a national security point of view. And then we brought to bear the fact that at that, that very point where they were asking the questions, that would also have tremendous public health impact. And the industry people that were at that workshop were talking about how it could really enable them to test more drugs in a fashion that would be more predictive, more efficient, and therefore unlock this vast amount of scientific insight to produce drugs that could have impact on the population as a whole. Wow, really, really fascinating stuff. Um, I, I just I want to get back to Dr. Curley for, for a minute. We've only got a couple minutes until our break here, but you talked earlier about Dr. John Kansas who invented the radio frequency machine that you use with the nanoparticles and, and that he tested the machine on himself in an attempt to treat himself for, for lymphoma. And we know that he did uh, pass away in 2009. And I think with the exception of Dr. Kansas, the machine has only been used um, on animals. So do we think that this, uh, that the use of the machine on himself somehow accelerated his death? Are we, what do we, what do we know about that connection there? Uh, there's no connection there. Uh, actually, John used to put himself in the machine very frequently, not as treatment, but just to show people it was safe. John, that's one reason John approached me. He knew that I had a background in radio waves and other types of, of energy like that. And we know that radio waves are passing through our bodies all the time. Uh, that's mm-hmm. why you, know, you turn your radio on in the car, you get a reception right away it's because there's radio waves out there. So the radio waves in and of themselves didn't do anything. Uh, John, um, you know, decided to treat himself because he was tired of the side effects of the chemotherapy. Yeah. Uh, he did that without medical input or medical advice uh, and heard me yell at him and call him a few things after he told me he'd done it because it scared the, <laughs> of the daylights out of me. I said, that's not a good idea to be doing, John. Yeah. Uh, and he, he, he knew that it... Yeah, he was just hoping, and and honestly, he said, you know, I just wanted to to see what it would do. He didn't take any nanoparticles or anything because we weren't at the point where we were doing that then. We we mm-hmm. didn't know how to do that. So sadly, John uh, John died of an infection. Interestingly enough, not the cancer. As Jonathan was just mentioning, the human immune system is a very complex thing, and when yeah. we destroy a good part of the immune system with chemotherapy drugs, uh, people can get awful infections, and that's exactly what happened to John. I'm sorry to say. Yeah, and that's not certainly not an uncommon uh, thing that we hear, and in, in, particularly in lymphoma. Uh, fortunately, I have to say that my grandmother had the very same experience, had lymphoma, and died not from the lymphoma itself, but from the infection uh, that she got as a result of that. Um, real, really some f- fascinating stuff we're talking about today on Frankly Speaking About uh, Cancer, some amazing advances in how we're looking at cancer and treating cancer and some fascinating things that are in the experimental uh, phase and that, you know, we're, we're hoping will come, uh, certainly come quickly to market for the, uh, you know, many folks, 1.5 million who will be diagnosed with cancer this year alone. We're going to take a quick break here. We will be right back. 
out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're, we're talking today with Dr. Stephen Curley and Dr. Jonathan Sackner-Bernstein, both well-known experts and innovators in medicine and in science. And in this last segment, uh, I can't believe that the time's flying by, but I'd love for our guests to tell us really where they see uh, the, the future of cancer treatment heading. Uh, you know, what... Uh, you know, when we're staring down the barrel here, what are we looking at in terms of, uh, you know, kind of near-term, longer-term, when we think about the future of, of, of cancer treatment? Where where are we uh, optimistic? Where do we see uh, some hope on the horizon? So, Dr. Sackner-Bernstein, let me start with you. Are we entering uh, a new era of cancer treatment? Are we feeling some good promise uh, about this today? Well, I, I feel as though I need to answer this question almost uh, uh, from two completely different perspectives. Mm-hmm. On, on one hand, if we were to look at the pace of technology and some of the, the scientific advances that are coming down the pike, uh, we would see an incredible path unfolding in front of us where we might not be able to say in the next few years we've cured cancer, but that's because cancer is probably thousands of individual cancers. But the, the number of cancers that we're going to get to the point of that we're going to cure, mm-hmm. I would expect is going to start dramatic, dramatically increasing. Mm-hmm. The number of cancers that we turn into a disease like hypertension, which becomes a, a nuisance, uh, becomes something you have to pay attention to or you get into trouble, um, I think that's going to go up even more dramatically. So it, it, it's really amazing. I mean, if you think about the fact that we have an Internet radio station, uh, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, the Internet was nothing more than a technology to allow for secure and redundant communications between military bases. That's what DARPA had in mind when they started to build it back in the early 1970s. It's much more now. The pace is increasing. The accomplishments are incredible. If you look back to science fiction, you'll see exactly what the future is going to be. Uh, we're living in an era of the movie Fantastic Voyage that many of us grew up with back in the 1960s. Mm. Um, the other way, though, I need to answer this question is is somewhat 
different than that optimistic view, which I think mm-hmm. will be borne out in the near future, and mm-hmm. that's from the perspective of frustration. Yeah. If you're somebody who has cancer or you're somebody who knows somebody with cancer or someone in their family or you're a doctor who's treated someone with cancer, you're incredibly frustrated because those cures are not here today. What's really fantastic that I've learned since being at the FDA and being able to meet people like Steve is even more than I saw when I was in the academic community is that the progress was there and it's really critical that we try to control our frustration where that's an option uh, because the future is going to be very bright. So, so, Dr. Curley, do you, first of all, do you agree with Dr. Sackner-Bernstein's assessment, number one? And number two, you know, what, you know what, what are the barriers? What's getting in the way? Is the funding there? Is it, is it, is it a matter of time? Is it a matter of money? Uh, you know, what would help move this along even more quickly? Oh, well, I definitely agree with Jonathan's assessment. Um, you know, you mentioned that we're now 40 years into the war on cancer that was declared in 1971. And while we put a man on the moon in less than a decade, we, we really have made only baby steps in uh, trying to treat cancer more effectively. And it just shows you that, you know, building a rocket and going to the moon, as it turns out, is a whole heck of a lot easier to do than understanding and treating human cancer effectively. But I agree that, you know, we're in an explosive era of growth in understanding and knowledge uh, in many, many scientific fields. And so I am the ultimate optimist. I see more patients in my own practice who are doing well uh, for longer periods of time. So I believe we will continue to progress. We will continue to do better. And it's just, you know, the frustration is you want to be every single patient. We're not there yet. Uh, in terms of barriers, uh, you, you left me wide open on that one, so asking about funding. Funding is always an issue with uh, any kind of scientific research. And, uh, of course, with the problems we've had uh, with the economy, there's been reduction in uh, funding rates for many organizations, including the National Cancer Institute. So it is becoming more and more difficult to get uh, funding from national organizations, from other organizations, but we all continue to seek and, and push for any source of funding we can find, whether that be from private foundations or uh, interested donors, interested individuals, patients themselves are often grateful and, and will want to do something of any sort to help other patients. So it's really gratifying when you see that, when you realize that people look outside themselves and see the bigger picture. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, as we sit here in Washington, we are, you know, we're worried a little bit about this, uh, about this super committee and some of the cuts that, uh, further cuts that we might see and, uh, you know, further cuts to cancer research, cuts to, to, to Medicare, to, you know, to Medicaid, certainly for people who are, uh, who are facing these issues today. So I think, I do think it's important that we all get behind, you know, fighting for those dollars and fighting, uh, you know, for, for, for the funding to advance the research and advance the, uh, uh, the technology. Um, Dr. Curley, as we move to the end of the show, other other promising treatments or therapies in development, other promising uh, technologies on the horizon that you're hearing about? Uh, well, you know, every time I go to a meeting, I get excited about something or another. Um, both Jonathan and I are aware of uh, another uh, individual, uh, Dr. DiSimeone, who's at University of North Carolina, who's doing some very fascinating things in medical research. Again, they're all nanotechnology-based. Uh, he's really using... Uh, technology that uh, is from the computer industry, uh, you know, to make uh, silicone wafers and, you know, processors from computers. And he's finding out how to use that technology to make uh, drugs and biologic uh, molecules. 
Uh, I actually just had a conference call with him last week, and uh, he and I are forming some uh, collaborations, I hope. Uh, he's already doing a number of things. Uh, I was recently at the Chemical Society meeting where, again, a number of people who aren't in the usual biomedical fields, people like physicists, chemists, bioengineers, are saying, you know, we need to take our skills and apply them to the problem of cancer. So it's a very energizing time for me because I see people who classically have not been involved in cancer research recognizing that it's a major public health problem and now getting interested and engaged in that research. And so, you know, are there others like you? I mean, I, I, you know, I love it when I look at your resume, Dr. Curley, that sort of intersection of, uh, uh, you know, surgical oncology, medical oncology, professor in mechanical engineering and material science at Rice University. Do you think we're going to see more uh, folks, more professionals who are looking at that intersection of, of, of medicine and, and, and engineering and other sciences? Absolutely. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we're in the third year of funding uh, from a uh, National Cancer Institute, National Institute of Health grant. There were 12 centers around the country funded. We were fortunate enough to get one of them that are called primary science oncology centers. And this, by definition, includes people like uh, physicists, chemists, bioengineers, uh, electrical engineers, people who, you know, we talk about the engineering group. Those are the kind of guys who got us to the moon. Uh, now they're thinking, okay, well, let's think about very small things. Let's think about uh, cancer cells and how can we think about them in a new way? How can we understand them in a new way and come up with novel approaches? So I think even at a federal level, there's been a recognition that we need to look outside the normal boundaries of those who have classically been involved in cancer research and be inclusive, not exclusive. And that's why, to me, it's a very, very exciting time in research. Dr. Sackner-Bernstein, as we get to the end of the show, uh, reasons for our uh, listeners to be uh, uh, optimistic. Again, next steps, changes that we're going to see in cancer treatment in the next five years, in the next 10 years? Well, I I think that uh, one way that that there could be a, a cause for more optimism is if the the public understood a little bit more about another way to favorably impact the chances of success. So we, we've talked about money, and money definitely helps, and I would, of course, urge people to make sure that funding for medical research remains at a high level. Naturally, uh, that includes funding for the Food and Drug Administration, but I think there's a whole other component, another level that may change how people like Steve and some of these cross-trained professionals may have a chance to get funded for more innovative approaches, which is that we should change our expectations to include the acceptance that failure is an option. From the space program that we alluded to before, we've got the the mantra that people have quoted saying failure is not an option. Failure not being an option means that new stuff can't be tested, can't see the light of day because it's too dangerous. So to make failure an option means that more people with different ideas have a chance to bubble up to the top, and then the the light bulb of cancer therapy can not only be developed, but can be appreciated and implemented. Hmm. Dr. Curley, comments to add to that? Uh, I agree. Um, You know, I'm a great believer in pushing the envelope and pushing it hard. Um, and we know that when we are trying novel therapies or novel approaches, 
Uh, we're not going to win every time. We are not going to succeed every time. But uh, actually, some of the greatest developments in science and in human endeavor have come out of mistakes or out of experiments that turned out opposite of how they were uh, planned to be. And somebody was bright enough to say, well, why is that? Not just, well, gee, that didn't work, so let's just go on to something else. So we need to learn from those mistakes and, and learn what we can gain. And then again, uh, as Jonathan said, I, I am an optimist, and I know he is as well. We truly believe that we do have better options coming down the line and that within our lifetimes, we're going to see a drastic difference in the way we treat cancer. Well, uh, you know, this has been a, a just a fantastic discussion, really uh, eye-opening and I think enlightening uh, for myself and for our listeners. Um, I, I just want to thank both of you for being here today. It's, uh, uh, I think it's so critical that we get this information out about what is on the horizon, giving folks hope, letting them know that there is some, some uh, optimism and some amazing developments uh, coming forward in, in, in cancer treatment. Um, and and uh, certainly uh, we're looking for more, uh, you know, safe, valid treatment options for uh, for patients in the near future. So the work that you guys are doing is amazing, and we thank you uh, for your dedication to uh, to developing these treatments. Um, we, we'd like to dedicate the uh, the show today to uh, to John Kansas, whose innovative vision and tireless drive brought researchers the radio frequency machine uh, to enable the development of many new treatment options being tested. Uh, uh, today, and while John did not live long enough to see his machine used to treat people, um, we have great faith that his invention will make an enormous, uh, enormous impact. Obviously, we're talking about treatment in, in, uh, into the future. If you're someone who has cancer today, someone around you has cancer today, uh, we at the Cancer Support Community have centers all across the country where we're providing support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. These services are free for people with all cancers at any stage of, uh, of illness and for family members and caregivers. So visit us uh, at cancersupportcommunity.org to access this free information. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>